Again, as we continue in our series through the pastoral letters, we are in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. We're just going to jump right in, uh, but before we do, let me just pray. Ask God to minister through his word to us this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Uh, the very words that Paul uses in this text, we too want to thank you for Jesus' person, the incarnation and his work, his death, resurrection, and ascension to your right hand. Help us to grasp the, the message of this text, to have it, help, help it to be something that touches our minds, that we grow in understanding of who God is and the way God works and the way God works through us, but help it also to affect our hearts, the, our affections to be formed, our, our loves to be directed properly. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you just the, what I think is this the overall thrust, the overall message of these verses. And remember, we're in the pastoral letters in 1 Timothy, and a letter different than a story isn't just continuing on regarding various characters and plot development and conflict and resolution, but a letter is making an argument and has little subsections or subpoints. And, and here Paul digresses a bit from his exhortation. If you've been... With us the last couple weeks, we, we introduced the letter, the, the author, the Apostle Paul, and the addressees, the, Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus, and the end of the pastoral letters is Titus, another pastor, uh, that Paul wrote these three letters to address churches and their pastors, but even the congregants about ministering the gospel faithfully in the context in which they live and work. And fittingly, we in this time, as COVID, Lord willing, comes toward an end as we readjust as the church and the family of God. These letters speak into our own situation to be faithfully ministering the gospel in the world. Last week, the Apostle Paul to Timothy addressed the concern of false teaching and false teachers, that we should be grounded on sound doctrine. And he specifically exhorted Pastor Timothy to boldly, he used the word command certain people in the church, to stop devoting themselves to myths and speculations and conspiracy and to ground themselves on the gospel, to be conformed to the gospel, which is about the glorious person and work of God. Here Paul digresses a bit from that, but in order to strengthen his argument. If I, if I were to summarize what verses 12 to 17 are saying, I would say this. Paul is saying that a Christian's life, and specifically a Christian's ministry, not only flows from God's grace and power, but also displays it. Meaning, it, it, if, if Timothy had any concern, if he was like, well, Paul, it's easy for you to say, that for you to command people, but I'm just a young pastor. How am I supposed to have the, the, the commanding force? How am I can see myself as a broken, fallible person? To go tell other broken, fallible people what they need to do when I feel unqualified or incompetent myself to try to live faithfully for God, to try to be his spokesperson. I need God. How am I supposed to, one who needs God, help other people who equally need God? Well, Paul tells his own story, at least implicitly. Paul is saying this, Timothy, if God can change me, if God can send me, if God can strengthen and empower me, he certainly can do the same with you. 
That's the message that this text wants to give. Brothers and sisters, this is so true for us, not just for what God has done with the Apostle Paul, what God has done with Pastor Timothy and the church in Ephesus nearly 2,000 years ago, but what God can do in us. When we are conformed to the gospel, we become objects of God's love and work in us, that he becomes uh, a, a, a worker in us that displays his goodness and his grace and his love. And we shouldn't miss that. We shouldn't underestimate that the God who can work for us would also be the God who can work in us. Let's look at some of the details in the text. Uh, I'll just spend the rest of our time this morning uh, giving you four important truths uh, that we should reflect on and respond to, things that kind of spring from this text that are, that are underneath that larger message I just summarized for you. Here's the first, and this is coming from verse 12. Every Christian is blessed to minister in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. L- listen to what Paul says to Timothy, but, but he's, just, he's speaking of himself. He, he says, Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength. And who's the him? Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now Paul's talking about himself there. He, he, he's saying three things. That number one, that he'd been appointed to service. Uh, number two, going backwards down, back on verse 12. Not only was he appointed, he was deemed to be faithful. He was trustworthy. He could be entrusted with the work and ministry of the gospel. But third, and that first thing he says, it wasn't because Paul had this innate ability that God was relying upon, but because God himself gave him the strength. While none of us can claim the honor of serving as an apostle, we all can resonate with Paul's gratitude for serving the Lord in ministry. Now, now, when I say the word ministry, I don't want you to understand it in a professionalized way as we often do. For way too long, the language of ministry gets reserved or compartmentalized as belonging to those who are on a church staff, on some kind of a church payroll. Brothers and sisters, Ephesians 4.12 I don't, know if we can, I don't know if we can beat that drum enough. Ephesians 4.12, that literally God has given his church apostles like Paul and prophets and pastors and teachers, shepherds, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Ephesians 4.12 should be the life verse of every local church that you, all of you listening right now, are literally being equipped even through this message this morning, the preaching and teaching of God's word, you are being equipped as the saints of God to do the work of ministry. Ministry is what the entire membership, the full congregation of the local church does. So if that's the case, then we can realize that no matter what your role is, whether it's uh, head of the chair of the elder board, a senior pastor, worship director, uh, women's ministry director, or simply serving in Awana, or in leadership in women's ministry, or on the men's ministry leadership team, or serving on Sunday mornings as an usher, or serving on the diaconate, or as a trustee, whatever it is, that we realize that God, as verse 12 says, 
strengthens us. He empowers us for ministry. That he entrusts us with certain tasks that he is deemed appropriate. Remember, remember Ephesians earlier in chapter 2, uh, when the, the passage 8 through 10, which says, not by works or we say, but by faith, to do works that he's prepared beforehand, like before creation, God deemed that he would assign us to particular aspects of life and ministry in and through, specifically, the local church. So please understand that an important part of being a disciple is being involved in ministry. You are a living sacrifice offered to God. So let's not, let us not minimize serving Jesus or miss opportunities to do so in the church. Let us see that whatever capacity, in whatever capacity the Lord appoints for us to serve, in whatever season of life that we're in, that we can serve. Even if that is simply taking serious the prayer requests in the church app and regularly praying over the brothers and sisters in need of prayer, that is in and of itself a significant task of ministry. Here's a second truth I want us to wrestle with, and this is coming from verses 13 and 14. My summary would be this, the story of our conversion should humble and amaze us regarding God's grace and love. Listen to how it does so for Paul. After verse 12, where Paul, trying to encourage Timothy, talks about how it's ultimately the Lord who gives him these tasks and empowers him to do so, he puts it in the context of his own larger story. He's basically saying, Timothy, if you think you don't have warrant to be a faithful minister of God among his people, well, let me tell you my story. Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's an interesting summary that's telling the story of Paul's life when he literally was not just an opponent of the gospel with his podcast or blog, but he would literally show up in Christian churches and stone pastors preaching Christ. He would hunt down evangelists and apostles and have them killed. He was a terrorist against the Christian faith and the ministry of the gospel. And yet God appointed him. Look at verse 12 in light of that context. Judged him to be faithful, entrusted him with this ministry, and then strengthened him. Timothy, if you have any doubts that you're qualified, if you have any questions whether you are capable or fit or worthy enough to do ministry for King Jesus, well then just look at my story, Paul says. Brothers and sisters, how is it not true for us? Who, who of us here can claim that, that, that our story is, is greater than the Apostle Paul's? Hardly any of us have been terrorizing Christians and putting them to death for faith in Christ. But whatever hesitancy you have of your ability or worth of serving King Jesus in your local church and in your community, hear verses 13 and 14. Ministry seems hypocritical because 
We were in such need of the ministry of Christ and received it. So Paul reminds us that there is no hypocrisy in that. We are needing of Christ. And now we serve him thankfully in response. The, the language in verse, the end of verse 13 could cause some to be confused. Paul says, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul is not excusing himself there. Well, like he didn't know, so it wasn't wrong. He's actually saying quite the opposite. He's saying he was an ideal example of the truth that Christ came to save sinners. That is, Paul was graceless, and God was gracious. And he's wanting us to see that contrast. One, one commentator and one of my former teachers at Trinity says this in one of his books on this passage. Grace gushed across Paul's life like water scouring dirt off a floor. Think of a power washer that's just, that's just literally cleaning the, the back porch or cleaning the, the, the grime off of cement in a driveway or cleaning the, the, the green off of siding, that, that powerful force that just cleans it off. Grace gushed across Paul's life like water scouring dirt off a floor. That is a miracle. Brothers and sisters, the testimony of a Christian is a miracle of God's grace. And I wonder if verse thir verses 13 and 14 don't want us to pause and think of our own story and the grace that it is. Let me put it in this kind of a context. Too often when we think of the miraculous, the ways that God works and in 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 does amazing things in our midst, we are, we, are, we are ironically looking outside of ourselves for that reality. We're looking for a miraculous healing or a miraculous resource of funds or a miraculous job opportunity given, all of which are God's providential workings of grace that are true and good. We think of the stories of George Mueller who had no food for all the children in his orphanage and amazingly a milk truck with milk that was about to spoil would show up uh, or, a, or a bread truck that got lost and had bread to give would feed the kids. And we only look externally to the ways that God miraculously works. Did you know that your own coming to faith in Christ is likely the greatest miracle you will ever see. And every one of us who is a believer in Jesus Christ, we've experienced that miracle. Think of it this way. The story of Lazarus in John 11 is an example of the movement, the miraculous movement from death to life that God works in all of us. We were, according to Romans enslaved to sin and death. We were dead in our sins. We had no life. We weren't just looking for a better life. We had no life. We were entombed like Lazarus in sin and death. And Christ, through the gospel, calls to us and we leap up and are unbound and the shackles of sin and death are broken. And that is a miracle. And every one of our 
testimonies, our stories of conversion should humble and amaze us regarding the miraculous grace and love of God toward us. I worked at a summer camp for four summers in my years in college. And I remember we, were, we, would, we would have during high school week uh, various counselors especially share their testimonies to the campers. And we had one of our counselors who, who, was, uh, who j- just had a rough life, broken home, uh, abused as a child, involved in some really, really dangerous and evil things uh, in her young adult life who'd come to faith in Christ and God had worked. Her testimony on the surface was just spectacular. So this was an obvious, seemingly obvious candidate for someone to share their testimony before the, congreg- before, before the high school kids. We were sitting around kind of the, who's gonna share and who's gonna lead worship and who's gonna uh, be in this role or that role. And when it came to the time of getting a testimony, it just seemed unanimous that this particular girl would go and share her testimony. And, and several of the other people sitting on the table thought so. And then, then, a, then a, an older sister in Christ uh, sitting there among these, all these young adults, all these college students, looked across a room at a girl named Emily and said, Emily, why, why, don't, why don't you consider sharing your testimony as well? Why don't the two of you share? And Emily just looked up and says, I, I, don't, I don't have a great testimony. I, I was raised by a loving mom and dad. I, I was in the church uh, from the moment I could breathe from birth. I went up through youth group, uh, believed in Christ as a young girl, uh, committed my life to him more deeply in junior high and high school, and now in college, studying to potentially be a missionary. I, I, I didn't have a radical conversion. I, uh, I didn't have this, this deep, dark area of brokenness and sin out of which I was drawn. And the, and the woman wisely rebuked her lovingly with me and several others listening, saying, you didn't have a radical conversion? I don't just look at the surface. Were you not enslaved to sin and death? Nothing in you merited anything but the wrath of God? And by the grace of Jesus Christ, he came and died on the cross for your sins. Would would your wrath have been any different than hers? The other girl whose testimony everyone thought was the most spectacular? Did God give less grace to you than he gave to her? Were you less dead than she was? This woman goes, Emily, let the Bible describe what the miracle is. Not Not just Hollywood. Let the Bible describe what the miracle is. Your testimony is just as remarkable not because it was a work that you did, but because it was a work that Christ did. I think verses 13 and 14, even though none of us were insurrectionists in, as, as Paul was regarding the Christian gospel, none of us were murderers as Paul was regarding those in Christian leadership, fair enough. And even then, some of us in our church family have some remarkable stories of God breaking us of our pasts and bringing us into are present with him. Even still, the wrath of God was owed on us all, equally so. All of us had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and it is a miracle that any of us can say that we have been saved by grace through faith. That should humble 
and amaze us and even make us feel more blessed that we're able to participate in the ministry of the king. Verse 15 is significant, and this is the third thing I want to talk about this morning. 15 is significant because Paul gives a saying. Here's what he says. The saying, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And here it is, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Throughout the pastoral letters, there are five of these trustworthy sayings. This is the first. These trustworthy sayings are arguably sayings that had been passed around, almost like little creedal statements, confessional statements, doctrinal summaries as a way to make sure people understand what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. Little sayings that are worthy to be memorized, something like what would ultimately manifest itself in something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Sayings that summarize the thrust and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll find five of these in the pastoral letters, and this is the first of those. Each of these trustworthy sayings explain the truth and the power of the gospel. And the first says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The saying points to the heart of the gospel, specifically God's gracious intentions. It also makes clear humanity's serious needs. God, through Jesus Christ, came into the world. That's showing his intention, his purpose to save. There's that purpose. Sinners, that's you and me. So if I were to summarize this first trustworthy saying, the first of five, it would say this, that the gospel explains our sinful intentions toward God and God's gracious intentions toward us. In Jesus, God's love meets human sin and wins. God's love wins. Our human sin loses. It is so important that we understand what the gospel is. I, I, I don't care if you've been a believer for several years or you're watching this today, kids, with your mom and dad, and, and you're, you're like nine, like my daughter is, or you're 13, like my son is, or 15, like my other son, whatever age you are, it might be even worth after this sermon is done to sit with your moms and dads or grandma and grandpa and say, okay, let's define what is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel involves Jesus, yes. It involves his death on the cross, absolutely. It involves us, that we, we were sinners. What does it mean that we were sinners, that we failed to meet God's standards? We'd chosen to go our own way. We failed to meet his glorious purposes for our lives and for the world. We were dead in sin. God made us alive in Christ through faith, putting our trust in him, saying, Jesus, we receive the gift of your life and you, in in gracious ways, takes the death we deserve and you bear it on the cross, forgiving us of our sins. That would be ways of talking about what the gospel is. Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, friends and neighbors, make sure we can define what the gospel is. And at least in this first of five trustworthy sayings, we see a glimpse that the gospel involves our sinful intentions toward God. We did not love God. 
We did not act appropriately before him. We tried to disassociate as creatures from our creator. But it also, the gospel tells us about God's intentions for us. When we did not love him, he loved us. God loved us first. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not die but have life eternal. That's the gospel. These sayings, as Paul teaches us, should be noted and deserve full acceptance. It's in light of the work of the gospel that we look at our last point of reflection today, stemming from verses 16 and 17. At the end of that trustworthy saying, Paul adds, of whom I am the foremost, I'm the worst sinner is what he means. And then he goes on to say this, but I, verse 16, received mercy for this reason. Here's why. That in me, as the foremost, or as the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What Paul is saying that is this. Here's my summary. Our lives, Christians, the broken testimony of forgiveness through Christ are billboards for God's perfect patience, his forgiving mercy, and his eternal glory. Paul's comment that he is the worst of sinners is not an exaggeration or false humility. Dismissing any moral success or right to receive the saving work of Jesus Christ is what he's not trying to do. In fact, the point is to magnify Christ. When you and I look in the mirror of the gospel, when we see who God is, what he expects, we will rightly see our sinful broken state. Only when we see Jesus as he truly is can we see ourselves. Only when we see Jesus as he truly is, perfect and holy and righteous, can we see ourselves. Look into the mirror of the gospel. See who we are. That is the the fruit that God is at work in us. I think most people, I'm talking even of just a non-believer on the street, would see the value of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus. But if they don't see the brokenness of themselves, if they don't see the reality of sin, again, things that unfortunately, churches can be hesitant to talk about sin. We can't be hesitant to talk about sin. Sin is connected to the gospel. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Our lives, brothers and sisters, become billboards for God's perfect patience. He was patient with Paul. He was patient with Timothy's hesitancy. He's patient with me and with you. He showed grace. He didn't give us what we immediately deserved. Our lives are billboards of God's forgiving mercy. And our lives, our lives are billboards of God's eternal glory. Paul ends where he only can end with God. And you'll notice that Paul does that a lot. When he gets to the core of the gospel and the work of the gospel, it just pushes him to the person of God. We saw that at the end of our passage last week at the, in verse 11, concerning the gospel or conform to the gospel concerning the blessed and glory of God. Like the gospel points us to God. Here, the, our story, our testimony, and the work of Christ for us drives us to God. 
that our lives might display Jesus' perfect patience, I'm reading 16, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And Paul ends in 17 with his own doxology. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And amen means it is true. We confirm. We agree. If we were all together, I would have us all say it together. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. It was this verse that in the 1800s, W. Chalmers Smith drew on when he wrote the memorable hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. You'll hear the music played for you after the sermon, but let me read the first few lines and, and, and listen to them echo the words of verse 17. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty victorious, thy great name we praise. The hymn speaks and reverberates this passage where we just are amazed at God's gracious love toward us. Receive that, brothers and sisters. Remember the miracle of your conversion, the blessing you have to serve your King Jesus now in and through your local church and in your community, that you are a billboard for the gospel, the gospel that tells the story of your broken condition and God's gracious intentions. Let us look even this week at the, in the, the mirror of the gospel and see properly the sinner that Christ came to save and praise and thank Christ for his goodness to us. Pray with me. Father, we love you and we thank you for Jesus Christ. Help us to continue to find ways to be emboldened, empowered, to, to use your strength to serve in our church and on mission for you in our communities. Father, help us to grasp what the gospel is. And I pray that if there's any brothers or sisters, any, any, any men or women, any children that don't fully understand the gospel, or more, Father, that they don't fully believe the gospel, that you would have them contact me or contact a, a friend in the church or another pastor elder or someone that they know and, and just have a conversation. Father, may your spirit prick their heart in ways that cause them to ask the questions, to look into the mirror and see themselves, to look into the mirror of the gospel and see Christ. Father, help us to live as billboards for you, your patience, your mercy, and your power as we minister this week. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.